0: Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast focusing on the big issues of the day. My name is Ambrun Zaman and this week we will be looking at a crisis that is unfolding on the Iraqi-Syrian border between the Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq and the US-backed Syrian-Kurdish-led administration in northeast Syria. The border, a critical humanitarian supply line for cross-border aid to northeast Syria, has remained closed since December 15th because of escalating tensions between the sides. With us here today is Hiwa Osman, a leading and most importantly independent commentator on Middle Eastern affairs, who is based in Iraqi Kurdistan. Hiwa travels frequently to northeast Syria where he has an incredibly broad network of contacts, as he does elsewhere across the region. In fact, I bumped into him there in November on my last trip to northeast Syria. So welcome to our show, Hiwa. It's so great to have you. Um, You live in a very tricky region and so we're extra grateful that you have agreed to speak to us today.
1: Thank you, Amberine. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on your show.
0: <laughs> the honor is all ours. So, basically, uh, something incredible is happening uh, on the border between Iraqi Kurdistan and northeast Syria, um, the area that's run by the Kurdish led autonomous administration and that is under. U.S. military protection. The border has been sealed for now nearly a month, right? No aid coming through, no commercial traffic, and this story has really not gotten anywhere near the attention it it deserves, and I do know that, you know, there's a lot of concern uh, certainly among Western governments and, of course, in uh, the Northeastern Syrian administration. Now, you are very closely familiar with uh, all these dynamics. So tell us, what is going on? Why has this happened?
1: Well, the border has been closed uh, since the 15th of December uh, of last month. And it's almost been 20 days now. And uh, it started with some uh, youth groups that are believed to be associated or have close in their ideology to the PKK within northeast Syria. Uh, It's a small group called Jawani Shoroshgar, means the revolutionary youth. Uh, Sometimes they conduct attacks on certain personalities, but they are a small group. They are not representative of the wider population. Uh, There was an issue over some uh, people who were members of the PKK who are originally from northeast syria Uh, they were killed in the kandil mountains or after the recent operations of the turkish army and the uh, people wanted to receive their bodies there seems to have been difficulty in delivering uh, the 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 bodies of those who were killed and uh, as kind of a demonstration or a protest took place on the border and uh, according to some reports uh, from the KRG, the Kurdistan Regional Government, this is the government that controls uh, the Iraqi Kurdistan, they say that they, stoned, uh, they threw stones at uh, them and they threatened to attack the, uh, the border gate uh, if they do not receive back the bodies of those who were killed. Uh, in the mountains and as a result the krg decided to close the border Uh, now obviously this border isn't just for trans uh, transporting or transferring uh, corpses or, or or transferring for just humanitarian mostly it is for humanitarian purposes but many people who reside in in northeast syria benefit from this border it has a few Uh, uh, a few, uh, basically a few aspects. On one hand, there are some commercial uh, trade between the two sides. Uh, Many of the goods that Turkey uh, doesn't allow to enter uh, northeast Syria or the uh, goods that that used to come from uh, the Syrian regime areas to northeast Syria in the past now come or they used to come from uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, people who need treatment, medical treatment, they come to Erbil or Duhok or Suleimaniya in Iraq and Kurdistan from northeast Syria. Uh, other people visit each other. Uh, so it's used for international NGOs and many other aid organizations. Now, all of this has been put to a halt and uh, the border has been closed uh, since the 15th of December. We are not seeing much move on the political front to to see it or to have talks. There oh. are, we have seen some delegates uh, coming from northeast Syria to, uh, to KRG to talk to them, but uh, nothing really has moved on the ground yet.
0: So, so why this disproportionate, I mean, wildly disproportionate response on the side of the KRG? As you said, it's a small group that's quite marginal. And okay, so they demonstrated and, you know, uh, they say uh, the Northeast Syrian side says that the rock throwing began from the Iraqi Kurdish side. At least that's what the Juwan and Shorish Ger said in in their statement, I believe. But whatever, I mean, (laughs) what you just described, it's incredibly uh, serious what's going on. Uh, Why, why are they so angry?
1: Uh, it is indeed. I think the, uh, the measure is quite disproportionate. Uh, looking at this group uh, and their status from within uh, the society in northeast Syria, uh, they are not that popular. Uh, this is very clear to, to any visitor, anybody who visits. You would always hear complaints about their behavior uh, in, in northeast Syria. And uh, some analysts believe that this disproportionate measure is perhaps to pressure the authorities in northeast Syria to take serious measures against these groups, because one of the uh, uh, issues or one of the uh, uh, complaints that the KRG has about the uh, uh, the northeast uh, the self administration in northeast Syria. Or the SDF is that, that they do not is that they are under the control of pro PKK elements and they do not take serious measures uh, against them. This is perhaps seen as a measure to to force them or to corner them into taking action against this group or declaring them illegal or arresting some of their members. Uh, perhaps I think this is the only analysis for such. Uh, harsh uh, measure, as many people describe it.
0: Well, that's something that uh, the KRG has been asking of the uh, administration in Northeast Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and the Syrian Democratic Council for quite a while now. uh, And the United States has been supporting it in those demands. And in fact, that was a precondition that was laid down by the opposition Kurdish, uh, Kurdish National Council during those now stalled um, unity talks that were being sponsored by Muslim Kobani, the SDF commander in chief and the United States. Now, all of this begs two questions. First of all, um, is it reasonable to ask this of of the Northeast Syrian administration to ask them to quote unquote, uh, get rid of, or however you wish to describe it, the PKK, given first of all the historic links that exist, and above all the fact that the PKK did play such a critical role, first of all, in establishing that administration and uh, in fighting Daesh uh, alongside the United States in fact. Uh, And second, second, my second question is, is the administration in Northeast Syria in a position to actually deliver on this
1: Demand? Uh, look, Ambarin, as you said, I mean, the the question of PKK presence in Northeast Syria is a lot more nuanced than, than it's not just a black and white situation. And as a result, you cannot ask for a black and white solution, either all or none. Uh, I think it is a process, uh, the, the whole administration of that area combined between those who are running the place and those who are in opposition as well and those who are outside and are more radical by and sometimes use the pkk as a platform or the pkk ideology as a platform to exert more pressure on on the likes of of the general muslim Uh, are, are creating a, a unique setup in, in Northeast Syria. I believe, as you said, uh, the PKK presence uh, there is, it has historic connections. Uh, they fought alongside the Americans in Kobani, we all remember, uh, had it not been for some elements that you were in the past trained by the PKK, uh, Kobani would have fallen into the hand into the hands of Isis and uh, the Turkish army were just watching from over the hill overlooking uh, the city of Kobani. So they, they, the history is long what is I believe best uh, should be asked of them is to ref, to conduct a series of reforms that even pressures the PKK to accept, these new reforms, because, you know, sometimes many of the people who are in the administration may have some PKK uh, background or associations with the PKK, but, you know, being a PKK member in the mountains is a very difficult modus operandi from being, from running a a city with everything else, or from running a population of nearly four or five million people or, or even more now uh, in these areas. So that's why uh, asking the, the SDF or the commander uh, in chief, General Maslo to, to get rid of uh, all PKK and everything else to do with the PKK overnight is really not reasonable and it is it will be very difficult for him to do so. What he can achieve is to, to be helped, in conducting enough reforms that gradually could reduce the role of those uh, more radical. Some of them are even uh, using the, the PKK umbrella or the PKK uh, title in order to to continue the, the way they are now in these in these areas. That's why somebody like General Muslim and the, and the administration should be helped in conducting reforms, conducting uh, political and uh, economic reforms that could create that will create a more representative, a more inclusive uh, governance structure in these areas. So that uh, the role of the radicals, the spoilers in that area like Joanne Shos Gerfa as an example uh, will be more and more reduced but uh, to to create this big hoo-ha around uh, the PKK presence and using incidents like this to to block the borders and and uh, create a situation whereby the entire population feels punished by an action of such small group uh, could only strengthen the hardliners. Uh, you know, in every area, especially in transitional phases, of course. you have the moderates and the radicals. Of course, and, uh, the moderates should be supported.
0: Totally, but you know, when we zoom out a bit here, of course, there's the broader question of Turkey and the ongoing the more than three decades old fight between the pkk and turkey that's now playing out in iraqi kurdistan and also in northeast syria or rojava so even if let's say general Maslum were to be successful in these reforms that you described and the pkk were to take a more or the radical elements as you describe them were to take a more conciliatory stance we all know that turkey will always say that none of that matters that they're all pkk and that they pose an intrinsic threat to turkey's national security and of course there's that relationship with the iraqi kurds and with the kdp in particular where well, of course, that there's that huge dependency on the part of the Iraqi Kurds on Turkey, which results in their feeling obliged to participate, or at least not complicate Turkey's actions against the PKK in Iraqi Kurdistan proper. So against this background, you know, how do we move forward in the absence of a renewed peace process between the PKK and Turkey. And there's really nothing on the horizon, not as long as Erdogan remains in power, it seems. Uh,
1: Well, this is exactly where the international community has to come in. I mean, looking at this, uh, as you said, zooming out, uh, looking at the Rojava issue, it's a microcosm, or it's a small part of the bigger uh, conflict. And the root cause of all of this are two things. A. Erdogan's anti-Kurdish policy, and it is very clear, and he repeatedly said, we do not want an entity in Northeast Syria, similar to that of northern, northern, North Iraq. Uh, he doesn't say Kurdistan, of course. So yeah. that's for saying, uh, uh, for saying that he doesn't want any Kurdish presence or entity on his border be it PKK, KDP, PUK, you name it, or any, any other, even if it's an Islamic AK Party, Kurdistan branch, he will, he will uh, oppose it. So, but now he has the perfect excuse because he's in a conflict with the PKK, because uh, the international community is listening uh, to what he is saying. He brands the PKK as terrorists. The Americans blindly are following him. Uh, by saying that yes, the PKK are terrorists. At the same time as they were fighting uh, ISIS alongside the Americans, both in Iraqi Kurdistan and in and in uh, Rojava, uh, this is where I think the role of the international community has to come in, and specifically the United States. Uh, I think Erdogan is maybe in a better place now, or to 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 open up at least to the prospects of some form of dialogue uh on that he could what? I mean this is could Why? Why he's approaching an election and uh, his policies are proving uh less and less popular inside turkey uh, he needs an escape rope and i think uh opening up to the kurds again could uh, help him restore his old position <coughs>
0: Well, but, uh, I kind of make the difference because I think his troubles are so great. The economy is in such a terrible state, and that really and is this, and this, is, this is for one his of loss support. And second, he has these nationalist allies, uh, you know. So it, it's like a catch twenty two. If he makes a move towards the Kurds, then he loses the nationalists. And besides, I don't think the Kurds in Turkey will buy it anymore. You know, I think uh, they see.
1: The thing is, with one of his, one of the main drains on his budget is this continued operations and his anti-Kurdish policy that he's uh, exercising inside and outside Turkey. Uh, look at the operation that is still underway now in Iraqi Kurdistan. It's according, it's the, what, the 40th operation? He keeps doing the same thing. Uh, and try, expects a different result. You know, every summer, every winter, every spring, uh, we have an operation of the Turkish army to try and every time they say we eliminated or we got through or we seriously undermined the PKK and the PKK is still there. Uh, 40 operations didn't end it. 40 more operations will never end it. Because I mean, look, I'm, I completely
0: agree with you. Whoever is in power, a peace process absolutely needs to be resumed. Uh, there's no question about that. I mean, Turkey's future, the future of democracy in Turkey, and also its economic well-being um, hinges on that. I completely agree with you. But setting that aside for a moment and going back to Iraqi Kurdistan, where you are sitting right now, isn't it also true though, that historically the KDP has always felt um, uncomfortable with the PKK, doesn't really like the PKK? And as you recall, back in 2012 when they the um, Kurds in Syria declared their self-administration, uh, that then too the border was sealed. and the feeling certainly uh, among the Bazani family was that, the kdp Kurds in Syria should be really running things so there is that too isn't there
1: look there is a historic rivalry or at least to say the le- to say the least not good terms between the pkk and the kdp and this goes back dates back to the 90s of the of the previous century now the problems between kdp and PKK, the direct knock-on effect of their issues happens in Rojava. Many of us say that the problems of Rojava cannot be settled unless there is an understanding between the PKK and the KDP over that area. Because from what we are seeing, no on-the-ground indigenous movement has emerged yet to say rojava first uh, although Muslim is calling for that but he is uh, according to many he is not doing enough to prove he they say he is taking an incremental incremental approach in that direction but it doesn't seem to be enough, enough to to be able to liberate well, what do you rojava? think of
0: what he's doing i mean you you know him very well you know all the major players in Rojava very well. Do you, do you think it's fair to say he's not doing enough?
1: I don't think so. To be honest, I think he's he's trying his best. Uh, but it is, as I said, it will be unfair uh, and unrealistic to to expect him to do to get rid of everything, all influences, external influence over Rojava overnight. And uh, that's why he's. His incremental approach to have a Rojava first policy, uh, he means well, he is trying his best, but uh, I think he should be given time. He sh- a, the PKK should not feel threatened by uh, by somebody like Muslim, and the KDP, on the other hand, should give him more time or, or should give him the credit for trying to or should should have some confidence uh, in him, in the sense that he is trying to uh, have a Rojava-first policy. The situation inside Rojava is very complicated. A Rojava-first policy and procedure cannot happen overnight. It is a process. and uh, It is an extremely delicate process. It has to be step by step. And with every step uh, that he made, he had to uh, play or to see the reactions of, of various sides. I mean, come on, the guy deals with KDP, P-U-K, American army. Uh, Syrian regime uh, border points on his border with Turkey. Uh, the Russian army are there. Sometimes you see the Turks have entered into, into his area and have taken large chunks. Now, this guy is, is dealing with four armies, international armies in his area. And uh, the p- politics, are they dealing with the internal Kurdish politics? So it's it's not an easy task, you not know. It's at so all, not
0: at all. And you mentioned the PUK, so I want to just interrupt you and um, ask you about what's happening uh, on that front. because uh, And you wrote about this very eloquently. We just saw a sort of um, power grab where uh, one of the Talibani brothers, Bafel Talibani, uh, and his brother, actually, Kubad, really, though he wasn't really at the forefront of all of this, but obviously very involved, uh, sort of decapitated Lahur Talabani, the cousin, and got rid of his allies in the security services and somehow just basically stripped him of his power. And Lahur was always seen as a very pro um, Muslim, pro Rojava kind of figure, and which, of course, incurred Turkey's wrath. Um, how has that affected?
1: The situation in Rojava? Uh, I don't think it has a direct knock-on effect. Uh, I mean, Lahore's uh, connection with Rojava was within the PUK framework, the PUK in general and their counter-terrorism unit uh, through coordination with the Americans and the international coalition were helping, were more ready than the KDP to help. Uh, at times in their fights, uh, but although I mean the, the fighting was happening in Kobani uh, back then, this is where it dates back their their good relationship. I think because the KDP, the PUK, and and uh, the the SDF or Rojava do not share borders, uh, they would have less problems. I mean it's obvious, but uh, on the border and there is influence. The, the the local population in, in Rojava uh, has two marks politically usually you say either you are a Barzani or an Apoche apoche reference to Apo, the the leader of the uh, of the pKk uh, a lot less uh, people support or come from the uh, political background of being pro-puk in, uh, so that they they are really not a player on the ground as as the other two, uh, KDP and, and PKK in, in, in Rojava. Since the split or since the uh, events that happened within the PUK, we have not seen or heard any open statements, for example, from Bafel or from Kubad to, to speak against Muslim. In fact, Muslim tried to mediate between the two sides. Uh, which is also, uh, and he visited Suleimania yeah, stayed there for a few days, uh, had the two meet each other, and he failed to, to, uh, to make the two reach an agreement. So that's an indication that he's, he stands at an equal distance uh, between the two, the two cousins. And uh, I don't think neither the, uh, the SDF or Muslim uh, no, would want to take sides nor the uh, uh, PUK would want to take sides in this uh, internal SDF PYD conflict. So um, it's I don't think it will have a direct knock-on effect on on the status either of Muslim or the relationship with Muslim, of Muslim with with Lahore on on his status within the PUK.
0: But looking at this whole picture and considering that we didn't mention this but Syria is undergoing its worst drought in 70 years and yeah. of course Rojava northeast Syria is the bread basket that's where all the wheat grows all the cash crops grow and they're not growing because there's no rain and uh, farmers are just you know collapsing under the heavy debt and yeah. prices are shooting through the roof for basic commodities and bread and all of that so The overall situation looks pretty grim. Um, How does he, you know, how does the Syrian Kurds get out of this, especially since there's now this new layer of pressure with the border closure? And how engaged do you feel the Americans are in trying to fix all of this? Because there is this sort of emerging or growing feeling, should I say, that the Americans aren't quite as interested in that area as they used to be. Would you agree with that assessment? What should they um,
1: Absolutely. I mean, first, economically, the situation is really bad. And uh, I was just reading some reports before our uh, uh, conversation about the prices of, of goods and basic commodity, basic needs, uh, rice, bread, sugar, you know, these basic things that uh, people use in Rojava. The prices are... Uh, Going uh, are, are doubling at in, in some situations. Uh, at a time when there is no real income, as you said, there was a drought. There's been drought for, for, the, for two consecutive years. And uh, there aren't many produce or local uh, produce or corps for people to, uh, to gain uh, any cash uh, from the oil situation. Again, the this star crescent, I think they are called, the American company are not able to uh, to export or to, to market any of the oil that is being produced, although it's little. But uh, again, it's not helping the situation, adding insult to injury. I think the uh, border closure will worsen the situation a lot more. Uh, looking at the role of the Americans, I think they are the officious bystanders in all of this. I don't know why. I mean, the... Talking to the various sides of the Kurdish Kurdish dialogue that was sponsored by General Muslim and the Americans, they say for the past on eight or nine months, no American has talked to them about this dialogue. And this seems this was one of the key instruments in, in, reha- in, in normalizing relations between the KDP and uh, the area the, uh, the, and, and, and Rojava but it seems to have put to a complete halt, And uh, so far we have not seen, since the new administration, we have not seen any serious uh, American engagement uh, in that area. Some say that this is paving the way for, a, for another uh, sellout, maybe a pull out of, of that area completely and handing it over to Erdogan. This is what some people say. And uh, others are saying that uh, Rojava is really at the bottom of, of Biden's agenda. And uh, their engagement with Rojava was only, was as they used to describe, a transactional relationship in terms of just fighting ISIS. Basically treating the Kurds as a cheap security company uh, for them and totally forgetting the humanitarian uh that, will, uh that will be involved should they withdraw and allow uh, the likes of Erdogan or the Syrian regime to enter the area and retake it.
0: So as ever, one can only hope that the Kurds at least become unified, faced with all these odds instead of, you know, allowing these big powers to uh, exploit their differences. And set them against each other. He, well, it was a great conversation. Thank you so very much for taking the time. Our best to Talar, who is every bit as interesting as you are. Talar is—he was very super, super, super duper, <laughs> wife. And uh, hope to have you both on our show again soon. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Ambarine, It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series On the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin and Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. So that brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. Please tune in next week for another episode with another very exciting and interesting guest